The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great limitation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Crystal. Well, good morning. My name is Ben. Uh, I'm on staff here at Restoration, and we're glad you're here with us. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you, uh, I would love to. We'd love to know folks here, so you can find me at the back door um, after the service. But we're so glad that you're here. You could be anywhere on a Sunday morning. We've been going through uh, the book of Acts this fall, and it's a New Testament book. It's it's about history. It tells us what happened after the Gospels. After Jesus ascended, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, writes the book of Acts. It's kind of a part two of a, uh, first, Luke was about, uh, the Gospel of Luke was about, so that you may believe. And the second half, Acts, is telling you, okay, what's happening now? Now that Jesus has come, we're just getting started. And so we see how the mission moves through the church and how God is on the move and how God will grab the hold of people and employ them and deploy them uh, with gifts to serve and love the people around them. It's this gospel show and tell. Enter into the communities in real tangible stories. And these are descriptive stories for us to grab hold of and get a taste of <clears throat> rather, than, rather than prescriptive uh, prescriptive meaning, see this, then just go do it, just like they did. 
Because all of it is, is the spirit moving in each and every person and each and every life. And that's what we're asked and invited to do also. And this morning we're looking at a fearless witness, a fearless witness in the life of Stephen, the story of Stephen, how he's fearless, marked fearlessness. Acts is really important because it's, yes, history, but it's, it helps us grab hold of something that is true in every single time, history, people, culture. We see this baseline human experience seen in this fearless witness expose, and that is that of suffering. Suffering. It's a baseline human experience, suffering. To be human, it means to suffer. And yet one pastor this week I heard said he read all through these um, different cultures and histories and times, and um, this person said basically the, the Western world of all the peoples in history have the least equipped people to endure suffering. The least equipped people to endure suffering. And that's a problem. Here's why it's a problem. Because we're not prepped for it, and it's what it means to be human. And all of us bear suffering, marks of suffering, scars of suffering. And they could be large, they could be small, they could be visible, invisible. Um, They could be fresh, they could be old. All of us in our stories bear scars, bear suffering. And guess what? That will continue to be the story. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is not, how do I get through it? Right? How do I just get from A to B as quickly as possible, straight line? The question we have to ask this morning is, if we really think that suffering is a, a basic human experience, how do we do it well? How do we do it well? And that's what we'll see in the life of Stephen. As it's just a little foretaste of an invitation of what the Lord would ask of us. And this morning, we'll look at uh, in three points as we look at this fearless witness in Stephen. First, we'll see fighting our suffering, fighting our suffering. Second is fearless in our suffering. And the third, uh, free in our suffering. Fighting, fearless, free. So with that in mind, as we see how the Holy Spirit moves in Stephen's life, let's ask that same Holy Spirit to move in our life as we want to grab hold of a fearlessness in following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're just saying the words that when when faith gives way to fear, we'll trust your heart. And so this very day, would would that sentiment be uh, true? Would it just rise um, in this room and the temperature of, of trust and of fearlessness and of freedom just absolutely rise? All because we get a taste of you, Jesus. All because we see exactly who you are, and that would change and shape us. We're all asking and coming into this room with an expectation of you're something. And so would you do that this very day? Would you, in all your glory, show us the beauty and the bounty and the power and the glory that you really are, that makes you up? Let us not go from this place without encountering you. I beg of you, Holy Spirit, move so that Jesus could be more believable and more beautiful to us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. 
So first, we see uh, fighting our suffering, fighting our suffering. So context is important. Uh, in the book of Acts, context is telling us that we are seven or eight chapters in, and a lot of awesome things have happened, right? This new thing is moving. Jesus has come, been crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And then the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2. And in Acts 2, what we see is uh, some crazy stuff and awesome stuff, and the church begins to move out. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's this ripple effect of moving outward. And so, as they're moving out, as there's this moving and shaking new entity called the church, what we see is that like all new things that come, there is a disruption to the old order of things. Case in point, Deion Sanders, right? Everyone's got their thoughts on Deion, the new new coach in the block. When something new comes, the old thought out ways, maybe tradition, maybe the ways it should always be because it's always been this way is disturbed. It's ruffled up. There's friction. And it's exactly what we see with Stephen. Stephen, uh, last chapter in, in Acts 6, had just become a deacon. He'd been appointed a deacon. He's listed in the list of folks who were uh, serving and loving and giving themselves away for those who are in the church and in their community. And this Stephen guy, this Stephen figure is highlighted. And he obviously was a great speaker, preacher, and he didn't give that up when he became a deacon. But he goes and he begins to teach in the synagogue. And he's in the synagogue teaching, and the people who are in this particular synagogue don't like it. They don't like what they hear. Uh, they're hearing about how he's t- talking about Jesus and how he's talking about how Jesus is the one who we've all been waiting for. And he's the one who's fulfilled everything. And he's the one who satisfies us, all these different things. And it disrupts them in the synagogue. And the synagogue is made up. Uh, Luke, the writer, is, is a doctor and a historian, meaning he cares about details, which means Luke is the longest gospel and Acts is full of details. And so he sneaks this detail into who is a part of that synagogue. Who is a part of the people that don't like what Stephen is talking about? And it's these people. It's the the freedmen, people who were once slaves, uh, who now who don't have to think like their captors do, but instead they think their own thoughts. Freedmen. Uh, The uh, Cyrenians, uh, these Greek, Roman, influential area. A birthplace of uh, notable philosophers and scientists. The Alexandrians, this place in Egypt has the most notable library in the ancient world, right? Sicilia, part of Turkey. Tarsus is a part of there. Where, who's from Tarsus? Saul, who sneaks in towards the end of this kind of reading, and we'll explore a lot of in the coming weeks. And then lastly, just the whole continent of Asia, right? There's all of these people represented in this one synagogue who are pitting themselves against and disputing what Stephen has to say. And all these people know their stuff. And they're from all over the world. It's not just this one mom and pop synagogue. It's representative for all kinds of thoughts. And these people that know so much from all over the world dispute with Stephen, and they are losing. They can't outsmart Stephen. It says Stephen is just absolutely um, eating their lunch in this debate, in this dispute. They can't curb his knowledge. And so what do people who are knowledgeable all of a sudden realize they're not the smartest in the room? What do they do? Do they say like people on talk radio do? Oh, that was so smart. I, when you called me an idiot, that really helped me understand your concept. No, they go and they take Stephen out. 
They go and say, hey, uh, you're disturbing the fact that I think I'm so important. I've got to get rid of you somehow. And so what do they do? They say, hey, they go and they stir up a lie and say, hey, go, these people, go tell the Sanhedrin that Stephen doesn't believe in the temple. And he wants to destroy it, just like Jesus. And Stephen doesn't believe in the law of Moses. The law of Moses and the temple, the two untouchable things in the life of Israel. And Stephen is meddling with them, even though he's not. And so these people go and tell this lie to the Sanhedrin. And then Stephen goes from those who are in the synagogue debating, absolutely winning in this debate, then up to those in the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin are a people who are the power brokers. They are the people who appoint high priests, appoint kings. They declare war. They're the ones um, who try people. And what we see here is a trial. Stephen goes from offending the importance that the synagogue goers have given themselves to then going to the Sanhedrin. And what does the Sanhedrin ask him? They say, hey, is this true? Did you say that you wanted to do away with the temple? That you want to do away with the law of Moses? And then he tells them the story of the Old Testament. We'll talk about it in a second. But he tells them the story. At the very end of the story, he tells them this. Um, hey, there's blood on your hands. You killed the Messiah. You killed the righteous one. Just like all of the nation of Israel in the past, the leaders absolutely shoved away all of God's messengers. There's blood on your hands. And shocker, they don't like that. Stephen has effectively exposed two groups of people. And all of a sudden, what do those two groups that are exposed do? Those who go to the synagogue and think they're so knowledgeable, and those who have the power in the Sanhedrin, what do they do with Stephen? Instead of saying, you're right, Stephen. I don't know everything I think I know. Or, I actually am guilty, and I have power, and we're sorry, we repent. Instead of doing those things and entering into the suffering of not being as important as they think they are. Instead, they get rid of Stephen. They fight their suffering because they want to avoid the personal cost it involves. They fight their suffering because they want to avoid the personal cost it involves to give it a nod, to think Stephen's right. Now, last weekend, <clears throat> I, went to, uh, I went home to where I grew up and um, for my a high school reunion. And at this reunion, it was a Saturday night. It happened uh, it in downtown Nashville. And so we had this great plan. My wife and I are going to drive to the, this reunion at this venue in my parents' car, one of my parents' cars. And they're going to meet us at the end of it with our kids in it. We'll swap keys. We'll come back to Chattanooga. Boom. And so this, uh, this plan uh, began to work out. I pulled up to the venue uh, for this reunion, spot right in the front. I thought, this is great, you know. Uh, you don't have to go through all the honky-tonks and park a mile away in downtown Nashville. It's right there. This is perfect. And then, you know what is better? Is that when, when it all ended, my parents pulled up. My kids were in their pajamas. Our kids were in their pajamas. They were fed. They'd use the bathroom. They were excited to see us. And we switched keys. And we're going. And we're three minutes on the interstate. We hop on the interstate and, you know, it gets better. This great plan gets even greater because all three kids fell asleep. I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is, this is good. And so we're driving and with three kids asleep, a moment to exhale after a long weekend and just think, oh, this was part was fun. It was fun to see this person. As we're talking and um, 
my wife and I connecting for a, the, a millisecond. My our our daughter, she's three and a half years old, wakes up in the middle seat and she coughs, and she coughs and she coughs, and then proceeds to vomit, and vomit, and vomit. And so as we're three minutes into this amazing drive, this perfect plan. I can look in the rear view and we're, we're barely into the drive. I can still see the skyline of Nashville. And I also look in the rear view and I can see the, the bodily fluids that are just covering our car. And so we think to ourselves, what do we do? And after, um, after trying to avoid the smell that, that this consuming this small cab, uh, what we do then is we say, my wife says, okay, we really should pull over. We should pull her out of the car seat. We should take her clothes off, give her rinse off. Uh, if there's a hose at the gas station, great. We'll just hose down the car seat because it needed that treatment. And that's what we should do. And in my mind, I thought, I don't know. You know, she fell back asleep. We got a good thing going. Why wake a sleeping baby? Make a, just get involved with this mess. We did clean her up. That tells us two things. One, it's good that women are in the world. But second, I didn't want to get involved because it just, the, the personal cost was just too much. I didn't want to have to engage this problem that was right before me because it would cost me too much. And the very same thing is true with the Sanhedrin and the synagogue goers and us. They didn't want to have to actually nod to Stephen. Hey, Stephen, you're right. I don't know everything. Would you, would you help me understand? And hey, Stephen, you're right. The blood of Jesus is on our hands because we killed him. And so oftentimes we fight suffering in our lives because the personal cost of maybe engaging it, even as we just brush up against it, if not just submerged in it, we have tried to avoid suffering because the cost is just too much to engage. It's natural. So that's often how we fight. Maybe one way how we most often fight suffering. What does Stephen give us? This picture of Stephen in the book of Acts in 7 and 8 tell us. And one thing it tells us is how to be second, kind of the second thought, be fearless in suffering. Fearless in suffering. So there's 52 verses that we cut out in chapter 7, and you're welcome. Because it was we read it on Monday, and it took like 12 minutes. It's long. But it's a great and this, this, go read it this afternoon. But in most of chapter seven that we kind of uh, had to pull out, uh, Stephen talks and he's going before the Sanhedrin, these power brokers, and he's talking to the Sanhedrin and they're saying, is it true? Do you want to do away with the temple? Just like Jesus had the claim against him, even though it was a, a lie. And do you want to also do away with the law? That's the question. And what is an answer? He answers it, but through this long telling of the Old Testament story, 52 verses long. All right, next time you're in, you're in court for the speeding ticket you got, try to do that and see how it goes. But he goes and he tells this Old Testament telling. He talks about Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Aaron. And in this telling of all these figures that all them know, he says, oh yeah, the temple? Well, they didn't have a temple. God dwelled with them. Because actually, um, yeah, the temple is important, but you don't need the temple because the temple tells you one thing, that you have a God that wants to be near you. 
And actually, this law piece, it's important. It's, it's a gift from God. And, and yes, I don't want to do away with it. But don't you understand, the law is given so that you get the God that gives it. He tells them that part, and then he goes on in verse kind of 51, 2, 3, and 4, and 5. And he says, hey, and guess what? You, you don't have the temple, and you don't have the law, because you don't have the God that gave it. That in fact, God's given you all these things and he's given you messengers in the Old Testament and the leaders of Israel then have rejected the messengers that God gave them. And finally, he's getting at God gave him his own son and you rejected him. There's blood on your hands, Sanhedrin. He says this, he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are not just, uh, you are just like your ancestors. You resist, always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him, the righteous one. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen seems like he didn't really read the room. He has these bold words that claim against the people who he's presenting before in a court. And he knows that he's before the Sanhedrin. And weeks ago, Jesus was before the same body. And we see likened trials and exchanges and outcomes between Stephen and Jesus. The accusations against Jesus and Stephen are the same. They're false and they're fabricated. The content of those allegations for Jesus and Stephen are the same. The temple. What they ask Jesus and Stephen is the same. Is it it true you want to do away with the temple? The response of Jesus and Stephen are the same. And they pretty much essentially say, Jesus is the Son of God who has come. And then lastly, the ensuing action that results from this dialogue is the same for Jesus and Stephen They're both drug out of the city, and they're both killed. Stephen here is following this pattern of engagement in a fearless manner with those who will kill him. Right? This thought of William Wallace in Braveheart. He's about to go and have this big, large battle against the English, and they say, what are you about to do? And he turns around on his horse with his blue face and he says, I'm going to pick a fight in that really good Scottish accent. I'm going to pick a fight. And this is exactly what Stephen's doing. He's going to pick a fight. He knows what he's saying. He has the bullseye set on the Sanhedrin because he's not here to save his own tail. He's here to make sure it's very clear what has gone wrong. He's fearless. And he thinks, what's the worst thing that could happen to me? You kill me? That's a pretty fearless thought. And the reason he has that fearless thought is because this fearlessness that he has in suffering is born out of this fact. And the fact is this, that the blood of Jesus that's on their hands is more precious to him to address than his own blood that courses through his veins is to protect. The blood of Jesus that's on the hands of the Sanhedrin is more important to Stephen to address it than to protect his own blood that runs through his veins, meaning he will die for the things he's about to say and call them out for killing Jesus. 
And so often the importance in such a courtroom and a dialogue and thought is reversed. We don't talk about and maybe air the, the right and correct and the just things that should be corrected. Instead, we save our own hide. We're looking out for me, myself, and I. And when we feel the tenseness of a situation where all of a sudden things can be taken from us, we instinctually fight a potential suffering by finding the exit door as fast as we can and saving ourselves. We aren't fearless like Stephen or fearful. We're riddled by fear. We're instinctually fearful because of what we'll lose. Something can be taken from us. Uh, maybe it's because of the unknown. I can't see past the horizon or, or through the fog. I'm so afraid of what I don't know, and that incites fear in me. Maybe it's others. Maybe it's their thoughts of you. Maybe it's their power over you. Fear comes because you're small and you're powerless, unable to enact change. Here, Stephen looks at all those things and says, I'm choosing to be fearless because there's nothing you can take from me, Sanhedrin, that I haven't already been given. The suffering and the sorrow he has and that he's really walking in, into says, everything I taste now has nothing, no threat to the future. That's what Tim Keller gets at in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says this, he says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, meaning we're happy now, but boy, it's going to be taken away from us one day. Christianity empowers people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. The Christianity gives the audacity to say, you know what? It, it is hard now. It is wrong now. You are suffering now. And yet, joy is coming. Joy is on the horizon. The pattern that Stephen has is a fearless conviction He's not being reckless. If he was being reckless, he'd be reckless with his own life. And it's not good to be with people who are reckless with their own life. He's being fearless because he's standing up for the things that should be stood up for. And it's all because he knows Jesus has purchased for him something that cannot be taken away. Even as we ourselves are marked by fear so easily. I'm saying that as a, the most fearful person in the room. Because we think something can be taken, anything can be taken, everything can be taken from us. So if he's fearless, if Stephen is fearless, what's this last idea that he's free? How is, how is he free in suffering? And what does that tell us today? Now, I've seen a counselor and, and walking through, like I said, I'm a fearful person. And so walking through kind of fearful moments in my life where there's been rigor or friction or tension or conflict or knocks or confusion, all those things and above. And as the counselor asked me questions about these moments that are marked with fear and driven by fear, uh, he'll ask a lot of great questions, some given context, some just exploratory of what's going on in here. But, but what he's landed at is this question. And the question that he asks me that stumps me Every time is, what does this mean about you? 
What does this mean about you? And I said, I don't know. I, it's a great question. I have no idea how to answer it because I can answer what it means for me. I can play the tape. I can see scenarios and in my fear, hit play and, wa- and, and absolutely assume the future, borrow trouble with a story that's not been written. I have mastered that. And yet he asks, what does that mean about you? Meaning, look at what fear is threatening to take from you. What is it? What does it mean about you? And here we get this beautiful glimpse that Luke gives us that, that Stephen does actions. And also we have this Luke written story that he tells us the heart behind it, what it means about Stephen. And it's this beautiful invitation because he's free. In the last moments of his life, he's never been more free. And as we see him, uh, his life end in 55 and on, it says this, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, there's an intensity in this passage, and we're just reading it thousands of years later. But it's important for us not to look at it in a, in a clinical way. We can't over-spiritualize it and just run through it. What hap- what's happening here is heinous. What's happening here is unjust. What's happening here is wrong. He's being stoned. And every time he's hit, his life expectancy is being shortened and shortened and shortened until there's zero breath in his lungs and his heart stops beating. That's what happens in the story. Murder. And yet, he's being murdered, and he's never been more free. Why? How can he do that? How can he be free, even amid the suffering that takes everything from him? There's this detail that Luke gives us, and it says at the beginning that, that Stephen sees a vision of heaven. And it says, uh, I see the, this vision of the Son of Man, and he's standing up. That Jesus is in this throne room, which would mean the, a courtroom, and he's standing up. Now, oftentimes the New Testament and also in the Apostles' Creed, it tells us um, that Jesus ascended uh, into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father, right? right? That means this. He sits because he's accomplished everything. Salvation for his people is done for. It's not a question. He's able to sit because like God on the seventh day rested, everything was complete. And yet we see he sees him standing. And because of him, Stephen, seeing Jesus stand, he's allowed to say, Lord, receive me and Lord, forgive them. And he's doing that because of this. Because the standing part of Jesus, the reason Jesus is standing in this courtroom, in this throne room, is because Jesus is talking to God the Father. And Jesus is talking to God the Father all about Stephen. 
And actually, Jesus is talking to God the Father about Stephen, and he's saying, I can't get over Stephen. I'm crazy about Stephen. Stephen is mine. And guess what? In, you know, we made time. In, in a few seconds, we're about to see Stephen. And would you welcome Stephen just as you welcomed me? Because he belongs to me. And God the Father says, absolutely. And because that is the very thing Stephen sees, he's able to say, Lord, would you receive me? And he's able to say, Lord, and, and would you forgive them? Because everything they're taking from me is nothing compared to everything I'm about to get from you. That's the only way he can say it. If he held on to what he had and he's losing in his life, he would all of a sudden have a bitter heart. Because when we lose something that we hold on so tightly, bitterness ensues, and there's not a mark of bitterness in him. And there's not even a mark of himself in here. He doesn't talk about himself really at all. What we see here is what F.F. Bruce, this theologian, says. It says, while Stephen was confessing Christ before men, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. And that changes everything for him. And it frees him up. He sees this vision of Jesus standing up for him, interceding for him, advocating for him. And because of that, he can lose everything now because he's about to gain everything he ever longs for and everything he ever wants and everything he ever needs. He can lose the things that don't satisfy because he's about to get everything that satisfies him completely. And that thought doesn't say, hey, uh, discount your bruises and your scars. It doesn't say, hey, uh, uh, let's just spiritualize it and just kind of mow through it. And yeah, you, you, you have hurt and pain in this life, but um, Jesus is here. That's not it at all. It actually wants you to look at the very things you've lost and the very things that have been done to you and look at the very things that you've done to others. It wants to have you stare down the barrel of suffering and not, not, not be claimed by it or consumed by it, but instead grab a hold of it, call it exactly what it is, and take it to the one who has suffered for you. Basically, you're supposed to tap your story of suffering into God's story of suffering, and that's exactly what Stephen does. And because he does that, we see that he sees a Jesus that's not making his mind up about Stephen or that is disgruntled against Stephen or um, bitter against Stephen or disappointed in Stephen. Stephen sees a Jesus who is there cheering him on, welcoming him, advocating him, being wild about him. And when we, in our suffering, look to a Jesus and take everything that marks and mars our world to that kind of Jesus— we too will find freedom. We'll grow in freedom at the very least. Because we'll see a Jesus that while we are not suffering alone because he's with us, it's all because he suffered alone. It's while we are losing things and he's with us in our loss, he lost everything for us. And even this, we'll see a Jesus who is there being an advocate, even while we feel so alone and no one is speaking up for us now, all because no one spoke up for him. We see in this story the freedom and the fearlessness that Stephen feels is all because he has a Jesus who has accomplished everything in a cross and in an empty tomb that lets him sit down. And also he has a Jesus who stands up 
to speak about the one he's purchased because he's able to sit down. Your God, I mean, your suffering is wild about you. And right now, even amid your pain and your scars and your confusion, is standing up, speaking to the God who made everything and telling them they are mine. Let's pray. Lord, if we were to split the clouds open and look up and, and make note of what we saw of you, oftentimes, if not all the time, what Stephen saw isn't what we think we'd see. We'd think we see a God who's disappointed in his, in his investment of us and in us. We think we'd hear a God that would say, you're just not doing quite enough. We think we'd hear a God that says, boy, I am really sick and tired of you going back to this over and over and over again. Can't you get it together? We would hear a voice that is more marked with shame and fear than fearlessness and freedom. And so this very day as we all suffer, big and small, old and new, Invisible, visible. Would we, like Stephen, catch a vision of who you are for us, Jesus, because you are for us? That in our suffering, we look to you because you accomplished the freedom that we're able to have through suffering. May we pound it into our hearts because it's so easy to forget and because fear would long for us to be orphans as we are taken away from your story and tapped into one that's marked with hopelessness. Give us hope this very day in your story. We pray in your name. Amen. Because it's so easy to forget and because fear would long for us to be orphans as we are taken away from your story and tapped into one that's marked with hopelessness. Give us hope this very day in your story. We pray in your name. Amen.